Excel Pro. They call them frontier technologies, and that's what they are, right? They're really on the edge. And so you have to find your way on the edge, which is a little bit different than some other paths, especially in the law. Welcome to Excel Pro IP Law, where we provide interviews and products to accelerate your professional development. I'm Neil Ungerleither. Today, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, copyright, and intellectual property with Liz Rothman. Our guest is a California-based lawyer and author who specializes in emerging technology, health law, privacy, policy, and legal advising. We spoke about the law and generative AI, approaches to intellectual property law in different jurisdictions, and more. Excel Pro's interviews and products help to improve your day-to-day job performance and accelerate professional development. For a transcript of this episode and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP Law community, visit joinaccelpro.com. That's J O I N A C C E L P R O.com. And now, on to my conversation with Liz Rothman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and your background? I'm an attorney and an advisor working in emerging technologies, so fields like artificial intelligence, blockchain, AR and VR, and in areas of the law, such as intellectual property, data privacy, and healthcare. As all of these very disparate areas seem that they are far apart, they all do intersect in these emerging technology spaces. So I've had a private law practice for about a decade. And along with my private law practice, I'm an advisor for the Cantalus Group, which is a boutique AI governance advisory firm and a nonprofit called the XR Safety Initiative that seeks to develop privacy and safety standards that are adopted by world governments, international companies, and stakeholders in the digital economy. So today we're going to talk a little bit about copyright and AI and my work with the Artificial Inventor Project, which is a series of legal pro bono test cases and is really looking at the challenges of integrating these new technologies into existing legal frameworks, especially those that have developed far before we could have imagined computers generating novel creative content. However, now computers are generating such content and we must really respond in a rational way and look at our laws and how we can evolve our laws along with this rapidly evolving technology. And I have to do the follow-up question. What are some of these potential IP and copyright issues that may come up as a result of generative AI tools? I think we'll get into quite a few of them as we go through this session, but really the main one is that in most countries around the world right now, it's very difficult to protect content that is generated by AI, whether it is autonomously generated or generated, even what many people might think of as humans using a tool, using AI to generate something. Some of that content is also not protectable right now. So that's really the main issue here. And then there are other legal issues, broader issues that come up of infringement of the content that are going into these models. If that is copyrighted and protected content and then being misappropriated in other ways. But right now, I think for this conversation will primarily be about the output coming out of these models and if that is protected. And can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your work with the Artificial Inventor Project? Yeah, absolutely. So generative AI has become the new buzzword right now. And for the purposes of copyright and AI, it's really helpful to have images or even direct experience with 
image generators like Dolly or Midjourney or text generators like ChatGPT or something like Jasper or any of the platforms that are out right now. About a year ago, there were three of them. Like Dolly had just came out about a year ago. Midjourney had not launched yet. Stable Diffusion, any of these image generators you might have heard of had not launched yet. ChatGPT, not even close. So everything has been within the last year, there's really been an explosion of this technology. And there are now hundreds and hundreds of AI startups in different places that you can encounter generative AI technologies that did not exist even a year ago. So it's a very interesting space. So the AI-generated output can, again, be generated autonomously, that is, like, without human intervention at all, or through the use of a prompt. So a string of words, a sentence, or increasingly longer text that written in natural English language, and then will tell a model what you desire it to output. So when we're talking about copyright and outputs of the models, the work that I've been doing with the Artificial Inventor Project in 2018, there were cases filed to register patents in the UK and the EU for AI-generated inventions. And those were then filed internationally for international patent applications, so in about 18 countries around the world. And it's created the series of test cases around the world trying to gain rights for AI-generated output or to push the boundaries, essentially, of whether or not this output is protectable. So the project is run by Ryan Abbott, and it has really, over the last five years or so, become an increasingly bigger project, taking on more and more different facets of intellectual property protection for the different kinds of outputs. And overall, it's intended to promote dialogue about the social and economic and legal impacts of AI and generate stakeholder guidance on the protectability of AI-generated output. And as I mentioned before, this is super important because right now in many countries around the world, this content and the inventions generated by AI are not protectable. So there's ongoing litigation in many jurisdictions, and it has even reached the UK Supreme Court. And then there is a case in the US right now against the Copyright Office for refusing to register an AI-generated work over the last couple of years. And those cases very slowly work their way through the court system. That project is really trying to push forward this conversation and test the boundaries, hopefully show how important it will be in the near future to protect this output. And for our listeners who may not be familiar, can you tell us about some of the copyright and IP issues around training data for these large AIs? Sure. So that's a whole other can of worms. But yes, there are the number of lawsuits occurring right now, including one Getty Images suing Stable Diffusion, which is a large-scale model for copyright infringement. When the models are trained, they are trained on millions and billions of images that are usually paired to text data as well. And a lot of those images are coming from the internet. And the same with the large language models, they're largely trained on all of the internet. So it's interesting for those of us that were like maybe like teenagers or older in the 90s, when internet culture really started to proliferate, a lot of the 90s and 2000s information is what all of these models are trained on and the history books written before them. But it's just an interesting fact. That's where the training data comes from. So if we have stock image libraries or Google image search, whatever images were on the internet, that's where largely these early models were trained. And so a lot of artists' work was in that pool of training data for Getty Images and Shutterstock and companies like that. Some of their databases were mined as well to train these models. And so at certain times when images are generated, even though when images are generated, it's not a collage, they're not putting together a collage of an image, but the system has learned over a period of time how to generate based on what its training data was. And so if you train on a large pool of Getty images, the output of that 
Getty Images might have a watermark of Getty Images on the bottom, and that's exactly what happened in this case. And so some of the outputs had Getty Images watermarks on them, showing that's how some of the training data was put in. So you might have copyright questions there. If you're an artist and you input your name, you might be able to replicate something that looks like it could have been your work because the model was trained on the history of images and artwork. And so in those ways, there are a lot of copyright questions that come up, and we're only just going to start to see the litigation coming out on that front and where it will all end up. I don't know. The UK was going to allow for a broad exception for text and data mining on the internet, even for commercial purposes, that you could basically train on any data that you could get your hands on. And they have pulled back on that now, and they're going to slow down and look at it a little bit more closely before they make that determination. I remember you recently discussed in an article whether weights of large machine models are copyrightable in the U.S. Is this still an open question? Yes, I think that is going to be an open question for quite a while. So a weight of a large language model is basically a combination of when you're training it and you're giving the model feedback, whether that feedback is coming from human interaction or if it's coming from the machine giving itself feedback, you create a collection of numbers and statistics about how to best generate images, text, content through all the training process. So those are what are referred to as these weights. And they're a secret sauce. They're the very special part of these models that will allow for the really high fidelity generation of images and generation of content that is something that you want to read and that you want to look at because that's the aggregate total of the training. But that is AI-generated output in most cases. So there are several ways that you could look at the copyrightability of weights, which is why I pose that question. It's a very interesting one because as we move forward, there are many steps to processes that we take. And along the way, software developers have been able to expand rights over what is copyrightable. But when we're talking about this AI-generated output issue, if it is entirely AI created, then we for several reasons can't copyright the output. And as we move forward and more and more things become AI generated output, then that will create a chain of issues going forward. And those weights being an interesting example of something that is so important in these models and so proprietary, so perhaps there's other ways to protect it. But for the copyright issue itself, looking at the practicality of not allowing for protection of this kind of output is a question that I think we should really be examining really closely. And for the use of generative AI as a creative tool, what sort of technological precedents exist for that? Do you mean for copyright purposes? Correct, for copyright IP purposes. So going back to the camera, that's probably the first one where you could argue that the camera really took over the creative expression part of the necessity for copyright purposes. And so looking at the camera and then moving forward to using some of the different tools that we use and Photoshop manipulation tools, all of these things as moving forward and even computer software taking over some of the different things that human beings used to do. So the threshold for copyrightability is very low, but it can't be, for example, alphabetizing a phone book does not qualify for copyright protection or the algorithm to do that, right? So if you say that, oh, my creative expression here is that I've alphabetized all of this, that's not a copyrightable thing because it's a de minimis threshold for what is original for copyright purposes. But when you're looking at this computer-generated output, you really can pass that bar pretty quickly, that it is novel, new. It's not a collage effect or looking at something else and copying it. There are a lot of these, when you look at 
the camera and then even like filters on top of cameras and the, this evolution of technology as we've gone forward. I think that that's the primary historical place to look for how copyright law has been flexible in the past and has moved with technology. And sometimes it takes a little while and it takes a couple of court cases and it takes some sort of pushing of the public to understand that, oh, if this camera came out, it doesn't mean the end of art form. It doesn't mean that all painters are now going to be out of work. Perhaps some of the portrait painters will be out of work, but then art got way more interesting after that. And there were evolutions that kind of came after it. And then those sorts of arts were mediums that were protected. And looking to the history of technological evolution, copyright law and our intellectual property laws and our laws in general have typically evolved to be inclusive of these technologies, because if they don't, then humans have to find ways to work around that, right? Humans are very smart. So if the laws will not allow protection of these works, if they are AI generated, then there will always be a person in that loop. Priority is a person in the loop there, but there will always just be somebody in the way adding another cog to the wheel to make sure that it will fit within the law and be copyrightable. So really looking at the history here and moving forward from the 1800s and on and even prior to that and looking how we can evolve these laws, hopefully in a somewhat expedient way as well, because this technology is not stopping. The use of it and again, the ubiquity of it within our daily lives is only going to become more and more significant every day that goes on. You've written and talked about the distinction under copyright law between creative works, which are protected, and facts and ideas, which are not protected. You've also addressed the current distinction under copyright law for works created by human authors and those created by non-human authors, as we just discussed. Could you elaborate a little bit on copyright protection for AI-generated output when it comes to language models? Sure. So it's very similar. It's a little bit more nebulous, right? So there's a lot of talk about with images, we can find the perfect secret to putting a watermark in there and figuring out how we'll prove the provenance of this image, or we can put it on chain or have the token on chain and make sure that there is some way to prove where this came from. The output of language models is the same for copyright purposes, that the output generated would not be copyrightable. But the ability to tell if written output was generated by AI, I think, is a much more difficult question, right? Perhaps we'll be able to figure out the watermarking and to protect those images that are AI generated and show where they came from. But if you have written content, you can always strip out metadata. You can always, I think, we'll find out if somebody can crack this code. But typically, you can always find a way to copy and paste and strip that text. And then there have been so many programs that have come out, especially teachers are very interested in finding out how they can tell if a written work is AI generated. Also, the models get smarter by the day. If you go into ChatGPT, you can prompt it to give you an essay on whatever a fourth grader might need to write an essay on or a middle schooler. And then you can say, can you write this in the tone of a fourth grader? And you could even ask it to make some mistakes in there. You can really manipulate the output quite a bit from the text prompting that you're putting in and really ask it to give you something that is difficult to tell if it was written by a computer or not. And I think from what I've seen, at least, and perhaps there's somebody that's really out there killing it with telling the difference between these, whether something is AI generated or not, it's really about 50-50, it's a guess. And sometimes you can tell a little bit more if nothing has been changed. Perhaps there's some cadence and style that's really indicative of a certain model. But then there are so many models and increasingly you could run these models on your MacBook. You could have your own model that you're tinkering and playing with. That's also very difficult to show definitively, especially if you're trying to prove that somebody is cheating by using an AI software. It would be very difficult to prove that in important circumstances. 
You might be able to prove it if somebody is just for a school project, putting it in and outputting it directly. And oh, the cadence and style here is very much ChatGPT, perhaps. But at a higher level, I think it'd be very difficult to prove something like that. Thanks, Liz. And shifting gears a little bit, let's talk about your career. So you're working on some very interesting legal topics that intersect with emerging technology quite a bit. Can you tell our listeners about your career path and what led you to this unique place? Absolutely. Sure. So I was a healthcare lawyer. I still am a part of my practice for a very long time and always interested in technology. And maybe about five or six years ago, I got a little bit more interested in certain aspects of emerging technology and some of the big changes that were happening. And my past, which I don't know if it would be the path for a lot of people, was that I dove right into the technology end. So I took a computer science course, which had not been something that I had done before as a lawyer. And then I taught myself some basic coding and went that direction and then really got interested in different aspects of these technologies and especially the intersections of the technology, especially the intersection of AI and ultimately blockchain and augmented and virtual reality. And I think that those are some areas that are really, when you can be at the center of those three coming into the next decade, I think that they're going to be incredibly important. And then the other various positions and consulting work that I do, when you get into these spaces and start talking to people, I think that there's not really a traditional path to follow to go into these spaces. Although I hear that there are lawyers going into law school right now to go into this kind of work, which is very, very interesting to me. And I think that there'll be some more traditional avenues there. But I think just diving in and getting involved in the communities around these topics and areas and then diving into whatever work seems interesting because it is really charting a path forward into these, they call them frontier technologies. And that's what they are, right? They're really on the edge. And so you have to find your way on the edge, which is a little bit different than some other paths, especially in the law. And does the healthcare law background help you with cases involving frontier technologies? From a patent standpoint, for sure, yes. But I think a lot of lawyers and regulators and everybody think that these areas, because they are somewhat foreign to people and they're foreign to everybody in them as well, right? Because they're constantly evolving and changing that they don't fit within many of the boxes of our law right now. And even in the copyright standpoint, I think that disclosure is the way out of this. Like, close everything, say it's, hey, I generated and allow it to stay within the system. Keep the system as it is and move forward. And I think that there are certainly changes that need to be made and there are realizations that need to happen as a society as we move forward. But certainly in the regulatory space, so in the healthcare regulatory space and the patent space, and then in contracts, a lot of this requires licensing and contracts to move forward. And so I think it is not as foreign of an area as many people think. It's just the technology, right? Like it's getting past the point of being afraid of any of the terms and the technology. And once you get over that hurdle, then you start to see how similar some of the areas of law are. And then a lot of it is either just business law or it's just regulatory environment or it's intellectual property. And that the changes that are occurring, it's about understanding what's happening. And if you can keep on top of the speed that some of the changes are happening and the new developments, then the legal part isn't as different as many people think. And last question, do you have any advice for our listeners who are just getting started in their legal careers? I think it's a matter of figuring out which direction you want to go in. And I think in this space in particular, it's about networking and getting out and meeting people and figuring out what's going on. Because I think it's the case in a lot of areas, but if you really want to be in the emerging technology space, you have to really get out there and talk to people. It's really about deciding a little bit of using your intuition to get into a new space. Right now, especially, there are 
hundreds and hundreds of new AI startups all the time, but looking at them a little bit more critically and seeing which areas are actually going to be moving forward or which are going to explode in the most recent VC funding rounds. I think the space for me was really important to know that I fully understood, and I don't know if anybody fully understands the technology, but I understood it to a level where I could have conversations about it. And I understood the technicals enough where I didn't feel overwhelmed or afraid to get into a conversation with anybody about it. And I think that for me was important. Some people are a little bit more bold and can go out and have more highly technical conversations when they don't fully understand what's going on. But for me, that was important. And then having a solid legal background behind it will help you navigate the direction that you want to be in. And that was Liz Rothman. Liz, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. It was so great to be on today. For a transcript of this conversation and to learn more about the Excel Pro IP law community, visit joinexcelpro.com. That's J O I N A C C E L P R O.com. Excel Pro's interviews and products accelerate your professional development. Our mission is to improve our members' day to day job performance and make career goals achievable. Thanks again to today's guest. If your colleagues in any sector of the IP law field might be interested, please let them know about Excel Pro. As our community grows, it grows more useful for its members. Remember to send your comments and career questions to questions at joinexcelpro.com. You can also call us at 614-642-2235. That's 614-64-A-C-C-E-L. Excel Pro IP Law is powered by Kaplan. The producers are J. Ray Sparks and Jeff Eisenman. The team is Shweta Kolkarni, Caitlin Cole, Jared Goff, Harrison Shapiro, Inesh Bose, Arnesh Bose, Aliza Solario, Jessica Stillman, Matt Crossman, and me, Neil Ungleither. Remember, we excel together. See you next time.